Would you clap your hands, all you people? Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. We praise you today, God. We worship you, God. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What a sweet presence of the Lord that is in this place. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for responding to the worship today. He is here. And, and truly, anytime the Lord is in this place, anything can take place. But I've, I've come to learn that he responds to expectation. He responds to hearts that are open and that are willing to receive what he wants to give. Thank you today, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Acts, the 13th chapter. Again, it is so good to see all of you. I think we're all very thankful that, that we're not having to bundle up. Even if, even if this is going to be short-lived, we're, uh, you know, we complain about a lot, so we should be thankful when these things happen. This is your first time here or second time here, or if you've been here since it started, uh, it's so good to see you today. And um, I know God has a word for us. Uh, before I get into the, uh, the message today, I did want to just say, um, if, if you were able to attend uh, the, the meetings, the church services that were on Thursday and Friday, you know there was uh, just such a clear sound from the pulpit and such an uh, incredible presence of God. And I believe you can go back online and watch those services if you didn't get a chance to. Um, but yesterday we had a, uh, a meeting, all of the ministers of Section 2 gathered together, and, and it's a, a biannual thing that we do. And um, I'm, I'm happy to say uh, that our bishop, uh, who uh, you may or may not know this, serves as the presbyter for uh, this geographic location in Wisconsin. It's called Section 2. There's about 28 churches. And he serves as the presbyter. And uh, yesterday he was reelected uh, again for another two years as the presbyter. And so we are so, uh, so blessed, so blessed with great leadership. And then also our, our Reverend Rebecca Curra uh, was uh, reelected as the ladies director for a section two. And um, so we are, we are very blessed in this church to have to have great leadership, and um, you get to experience it here. Um, but just know that they, uh, they represent this church very well on a section and district level. And so we are very blessed with them and what they've done. And, and, uh, and there's more of you that uh, are not in elected positions, but you serve on the platform at these events, and you do sign language. And, and so we're just so very blessed to have uh, so much talent and and uh, individuals at this church that are willing to be used by God. Amen. Acts chapter 13, verse number 21 says, And afterward, they asked for a king. They were, they were done with, with God being the one who led them. They wanted to be like everyone else. A danger when we look outside and want to be like everyone else. Because what happens when God says, Okay, I'll give you what you want. And God did that. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. This was a man after their heart. This was a man that they wanted, a man that represented their needs and their desires. And when he had removed him, Saul was short-lived. God raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will. We started this last week series called After God's Own Heart. And if I didn't say it last week, let me say it at the onset of this message. I think it should be each one of our prayer that when God looks at us, he identifies us as a, 
a man or a woman after his heart. I know David is the only one credited with this, this phrase in Scripture, but I still believe God is looking for a man and for a woman whose heart is set on him. Someone who he can look at and say, that's a man after my heart. That's a woman after my That's a son and a daughter after my heart. And we're going to continue this conversation today. And so would you do this? Would you just set your Bibles down? And would you just ask that God would, would open your heart wide to receive the word that's going to go forth today? Jesus, we love you so much. We're so thankful for your presence, so thankful for what you are doing. And we know that you have yet work to do. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just anoint these lips of clay, these fragile lips, God, these frail lips. And I pray that I would be the amplifier of heaven. I pray as the words go forth from my mouth that they would land on fertile soil, that every heart in this place would be open to receive what it is you want them to hear. Touch us today, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and let them know how nice it is to see them. Thank them for putting on their Sunday best. And uh, you may be seated. David, he's a man after God's own heart. It's a statement that was said about no other person in Scripture. A statement that is both revealing and remarkable when you stop and consider that a perfect God said this about an imperfect man. God, God looked in the sea of sinful humanity and found a man after his own heart. So, so what made David so special? What, what was so different about him from everyone else? Was it, was it something that he was born with? Was it due to his family name or his reputation? Was, was there this distinctive X factor that he possessed? If we're not careful, sometimes we look at people within the pages of Scripture and we think that somehow they possessed things that we don't have today. The Bible is replete with, with men and women that have and had doubts and had struggles and, and dealt with the complexities of dysfunction in their family. Men and women who dealt with the dysfunction of an upbringing that they didn't allow to change the way that they acted or behaved. Now, obviously, the answer to all of these questions is no. When you begin to investigate and peel away the layers of David's life, you quickly realize that it's not a singular moment in his life that made this statement true, but rather the sum total. It wasn't a singular attribute or characteristic, but the contents of David's character. I've heard it said that when God takes the measure of of a man. He doesn't put a tape measure around his mind to see how much he knows, but he puts it around his heart to see how much he obeys. And the more we understand about David, the more we realize that truly this was the case. In the opening scripture, it clearly outlines this. It says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. In the New Living Translation, that last part says, he will do everything I want him to do. That's what God is looking for. Obedience. That's the one of many things that was attractive about David, that God knew David would do everything that was required of him. That he would be a man that was completely and totally committed to God. And the reality today is God is still looking for individuals like this. He's, he's looking for an individual whose heart desire is to do the will of the Father. He's looking for a man who's willing to surrender to the call of God. He's looking for a, a woman who's saying, not my will be done but your will be done. He's looking for a family that will do everything he wants them to do. And he found that in David. Understand, this is where Saul missed the mark. Saul started out on this path. Saul started out being obedient to God. Saul started out doing what God had asked 
of him to do. But there came a point when, when God said to Saul, when you go in and fight the Amalekites, you are to totally destroy every part of them. You're not to take any of the spoil. You're not to take any of their possessions, but just destroy it all. And, and Saul thought, well, what, what, what does it hurt to take some of the sheep? We can sacrifice those for God. And what, what, what is it, what's so bad with taking some of the gold? We can use that for God. What's so bad with killing their king? Let's just keep him. I'm here to tell you today that partial obedience is disobedience. To, to follow God's will and say, I'll do 99% of it, but there's this 1% I have an issue with. That is disobedience. This isn't the law of averages with God. God is a God that says either you obey me or you do not obey me. Either you obey my precepts, my laws, my commands, and my decrees, or you don't. And Samuel would come to Saul, and he would say to them, Has the Lord, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God was saying, your obedience is more important than your ministry. Your obedience is more important than your service to the kingdom of God. Sometimes we get so, so focused on doing the will of God that we fail to obey God. And God's saying, listen, I'm not so worried about your service or your sacrifice or your commitment. All I want is your obedience to me. And then let those things follow. God's expectation for us has not changed. Second Chronicles 16 and 9 says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is searching for a man and for a woman who are fully committed to him. He's, he's looking for someone who is fully committed. Hear me today. He's looking for someone who will hide his word in their heart that they might not sin against him. He, he's looking for someone not just to be a casual Christian, not just to be a Sunday Christian, but he's looking for someone that wants to walk with him on a daily basis. Somebody who wakes up in the morning and the first thing they think to do is, I, I need to get into the presence of God. A, a person that lives their life not to please themselves, not to accomplish their own will, not to build their kingdom, but somebody whose heart desire is to be committed to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. Amen. He's looking for someone after his own heart. And, and my desire is that that someone is you. David was a man after God's own heart, and as we look at his life, we see like a diamond there were many facets to what made this statement true. Last week, we talked about how David was consistently humble. He was humble in obscurity. Before he was even known, there was a spirit of humility upon David. David wasn't trying to uh, jockey for position. David wasn't trying to be better than the rest. And, and then God saw him in his humility, and God raised up a man who defeated a giant. And all of a sudden, accolades began to pour on David. And we see that not only is he humble in obscurity, but he's also humble and prosperity. That as God established his kingdom, he would say on his deathbed to God, who am I that you would look at me, a poor servant? But David wasn't just humble in obscurity and prosperity, but he was also humble in adversity. That when spears were being thrown at him by the king that God had rejected. That, that when people would throw rocks and words and accusations against David, David would not fight back. But David would say, listen, peradventure God is upset with me. Peradventure God is not happy with me. I will just walk away. And so when Saul threw spears, he left. When Absalom tried to take over the kingdom, he left. When Shimei threw rocks at him, he left. He was humility throughout. But today I want to draw your attention to the fact that David continually prayed. There, there's no better way to know the will of God. There's no clearer way to accomplish the will of God. There's no simpler way to be obedient to the will of God than by having a relationship with God. I, I know that's deep. You may want to write this first point down and 
and I shuddered when I wrote it. It was just deep revelation about the life of David, and here it is. David developed a relationship with God. Drink that in for a minute. Let's take a Selah moment while I drink, and you just consider that fact. (laughs) Of the 150 Psalms, David is accredited with writing 73. Within these Psalms are, are portraits into the life of David and his relationship with God. We, we see psalms of thanksgiving and psalms of praise. But more specifically, we see psalms of lament and psalms of required and demanded justice from God for David's enemies. And within the psalms, like a, a beautiful mosaic, we get fragmented pieces that give insight into David's relationship with God. And we see really early in David's life that David prioritized relationship with God. David didn't wait until he became king to pray. He he didn't wait until there were giants on the battlefield to establish a relationship with God. He he didn't wait until enemies rose up against him and tried to come at him to pray. He didn't wait until accusations and spears were flying to pray, but rather David, a little no-named forgotten shepherd boy, prioritized a relationship with God on the backside of a wilderness when everyone else was, was serving the king, when everyone else was getting an education, and when everyone else seemed to be advancing in their ministry, there David was, daily tending the sheep because it was his father's desire. And in those moments, David became acquainted with the presence of God. In those moments all by himself where he could have gotten lost in his daydreams, where he could have began to contemplate how unfair his life was, and when he could have become bitter and frustrated, David said, no, I'm going to lean into this relationship with God. And so David, we don't see this, but we, we can see the byproduct of it. David daily communed in the presence of God. David would write songs unto the Lord. David would talk to God just like a man talks with his friend. And then when he turned to the Lord and, and, and when the enemy came in and, and life progressed, we see that nothing changed, that David's relationship simply progressed with every stage and with every season and with every trial and with every test. Psalms 27 and verse 4 tells us this, and this is David's heartbeat. He says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I might have all the blessings of God. No. One thing have I desired of the Lord, this will I seek after, that I, that I may be used mightily for God. No. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and this will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire into his temple. That was David's one thing. When they said, David, what's the one thing you want? He says, I need to get myself to the house of God. David, what's, what's the one thing that's most important to you? To be in that place where the presence, where the Ark of the Covenant is. I want to be as close to the presence of God. And so one thing I desire, and this will I seek after. No one's going to get in my way. No one's going to come against me. This is my heart's desire to dwell in the house of the Lord. Before David needed anything from God, he learned everything from God. We we see later on, David says in Psalms 27, verse 8, later on in this passage, he said, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, will I seek. I I don't know if you have experienced this, but there are are moments in prayer. I, I remember a moment in particular when I had made a commitment to God to a, a certain time that I would come to the church and pray. And it was, it was a sacrifice because I couldn't just roll out of bed and go to my prayer closet. I was physically get in the car and, and come here. And I remember after a month or so of doing it, there was just a day where, where, where I was out late and, and I just I wasn't feeling like, like I, I could make it that day. I just wanted to sleep. And you know, you know the feeling, right? And Maybe none of you are that way. Most of you, when the alarm, you're up before the alarm, right? Okay. Not me. I mean, we have a struggle every morning, the alarm. I've, I've finally, my, my alarm, if you're in our room, which I hope you never are, but if you're ever in our room at early in the morning, um, first I'll question why you're there, but, 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 but when, when the alarm goes off, it's, it's, uh, 
it's the sound of birds chirping. And, and it, it, it's very peaceful at first, but the more you ignore the birds, the more aggressive they get. And, and, and first, they're just sitting out on your power line, just, you know, like singing a beautiful song. But, but before long, they're dive bombing you and trying to peck out your eyes. And Angie will say, are you going to turn that off or are you going to get up? And David said, when you said, seek your face, my my, my heart said, Lord, your face shall I seek. And so I remember that morning, I, I just, the alarm went off and I just sat there and, and the covers were heavier than they were in days past. It was like cement. I just couldn't move a muscle. And I remember thinking to myself and justifying it, it he'll be fine with it. And I remember in that moment hearing a still small voice that just said, I'm waiting for you. That I had put this date on my calendar and I had blocked off this time and I had said, this is going to be a discipline in my life and this is going to be something so personal to me. But the Lord had also blocked off the point and he had said, this is also important to me. David said, when you said, seek my face. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a mentor that told David to seek God's face. It wasn't uh, an elder that told David to seek God's face. It wasn't a peer or a contemporary. It was the Lord of hosts, the creator of the universe, that looked at David and said, seek my face. And David said, all I can say is, your face will I seek. Basically saying, I'm coming after it. If you're going to make yourself available to me, Lord, I'm going to take as much of you as I can get. If you want to reveal yourself to me, Lord, I want to see as much of you as I can get. I'm here to tell you today that the Lord's desire is relationship with you. Yes, he wants to bless you. Yes, he's going to forgive you every time you fail. Yes, he wants to deliver you and redeem you and save you and heal you. But his request is, will you seek my face? Not will you seek my hands. Not will you seek my benefits. He's not asking you, will you seek me for what you can get out of the relationship? Yeah, I know you have needs. Yeah, I know there are trials in your life. Yeah, I know there's our testings. And I know your relationships and your household is on the rocks. But, but instead of seeking my hands, instead of seeking what you can get out of it, would you just seek my face? My goodness, my nature, uh, more of who I am. You'll, you'll get what you want in my hands, but you'll see who I am in my face. He's saying, don't just seek my hands, seek my face. Later, David would say this. He would say, this is Jacob speaking of the covenant people. This is the covenant people, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. See, he turned it from just me, and then he was saying that this covenant people also needs to, this needs to be a generation. This needs to be a church. Before I got up here, I've been praying all morning, Lord, make us a church that desires prayer. Make us a church who's hungry for the heart of God. Make us a church that every time the doors are open, we get into this place because we realize that where the Lord is, anything can happen. Make this a church where we privately go into our prayer closets, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but Lord, help it to be every day. Then David said, verse 7, lift up your head. O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. It's believed that David wrote this psalm with the expectation that the Ark of the Covenant was coming back to Jerusalem. That it had been gone for a while. The presence of God had fallen into the hands of the enemy. And there was a day, and we'll talk about it in two weeks. There was a day when the Ark of the Covenant was coming. And he said, lift up you head, oh ye gates, and be lifted up you everlasting doors. And the king of glory will come in. And there it was that day, and we know what David did. He began to dance into the presence of the Lord because he realized that the glory and the presence and the power and the majesty of God was coming back. Ancient rabbinical sources tell us that in the New Testament, this psalm was a psalm that, that, that the rabbis would speak and would sing on the first day of worship, which was Sunday. <laughs> 
Oh, Jacob, the generation who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the king of, and they didn't realize that on one day in particular, that as they were singing this psalm, all of a sudden on a colt came the Messiah, and people were laying down garments as he was coming in, and they had palm branches in their hands, and they were saying, Hosanna, the prayer of their heart had been answered. The God, the Messiah, the one that they were awaiting as they began to praise Sunday after Sunday. One day they looked up through their window and there was Jesus of Nazareth coming to pay it. And now for this generation, this is the gates and this is the door. Lift up ye gates, be open you everlasting doors and the king of glory will come in. We're not looking for him to just come into a building. We're not looking for him to come into just a geographic location. But we can say, come into me, Lord. Be lifted up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of Glory says, if you open it up to me, Jim, I'm coming in. If you're going to make yourself available to me, I will come in. (laughs) Revelations 3 and 20, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man will hear my voice and answer, I will come in. And so our prayer needs to be, the doors are opening. Come in, King of glory. We see that David prioritized relationship, and so should we. David not only prioritized it, he also practiced it. Psalms 55 and 16 says, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry out loud. It wasn't just a concept. It wasn't just something that was important to David. It wasn't just something that he would talk about with his peers. It wasn't just something that as a king he wanted to be important in the kingdom. But he said, no, there are three times a day that I'm going to practice this. It was scheduled. It was repeatable. It was practiced. Understand your walk with God is only as strong as your relationship with him. Let me say it this way. No Christian is stronger than their relationship with God. If faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, if faith comes by what we hear, then relationship comes by talking. If the faith that's in your heart and the faith that's growing comes by you attending a service, that's how your faith is going to grow. But your relationship with God may or may not grow in this moment because it's not just what you hear that grows your relationship with God. It's what you say. So if faith comes by hearing, then, then, then my depth with God comes by me talking. It comes by me practicing his presence. It comes by me daily getting alone into the presence of God. It comes with me daily communicating and making it a priority. You see, a habit will carry you beyond your desires. I desire you, Lord. But, but scheduling it shows that you're going to do it. There, there are many people that, that have great intentions. There are many people that have fallen to their great intentions. Our prayer life must be a habit of prayer. We, we, we don't want to just be people of prayer. We need to be people that have prayer lives. Amen. I said this on Wednesday. There is a difference between praying and having a prayer life. I, I know everyone in this room prays. I, I know you pray for your supper. I know when things are going wrong, you pray. I, I know this church knows how to pray. But there's a difference between praying and having a prayer life. A prayer life is something that happens on a constant basis. A prayer life is something that has depth to it. It's something that has quality time to it. It's not something that that just is when I can get to it. It's something that's protected. It's something that you're saying, listen, I can can cancel the plans with you, but I won't cancel the plans with him. I, I, I can move this off my schedule, but I refuse to move that off my schedule because I have the captive attention of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God's not just looking for theorists. He's looking for practitioners. We have a world filled with theorists, people who who do research and and they run tests and labs and, and they can theorize based off of the tests that they've done. But there's something about a practitioner there's something about when, when, when somebody gets up who's accomplished something. You can tell the fakes from those who've made it. You can talk, you can hear when somebody really has done something because you can feel the conviction in their voice and you can see the experience through what they say. We don't need theorists in prayer. 
I've read five books on prayer. I listened to 20 messages. I've studied it out. I'm talking about it all the time. But when do you pray? I haven't made time yet. We're not looking for theorists. We're looking for practitioners, people who daily practice the presence of God. David, it was priority. It was practice. But also, you got to understand about David's relationship with God. It wasn't a performance. Yes, we benefit from the Psalms today. We've, we've turned them into songs to sing. We, we go to them in times of trouble. We memorize them and repeat them. But, but I, I don't want to burst your bubble, but the Psalms weren't meant for you. David wasn't writing them and saying, ah, this is a good song. This is going to bop one day. I can just hear the, the bass riff, and I can hear the drums. The drums are going to be doing this jungle beat, and it's going to be good, and they're going to be worshiping, and people are going to be. No, David wrote that from his own heart to God. He said, I'm not writing this for you. This is not a performance. This, this is my heartfelt desire for the Lord. And so I'm writing out of the overflow of what's inside of me. Uh, understand something about prayer. Prayer is not a performance. Listen to the words that David said in, in his prayer. David would say things like this to God. Why have you forgotten me? How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How, how long will you let my enemies come against me? It seems like you're blessing my enemies. Oh, that's not a way to talk to God. But, but you see, there was something about David. It, it wasn't just a ritualistic repeat after me. That This wasn't just something he did because he was told to. He didn't just say the, the Lord's Prayer every day. But no, there was something deep and there was something real. And I've learned about prayer that the realer it gets, sometimes the uglier it gets. I don't sit down with my wife and I don't rehearse what I'm going to say to her. I go to my wife and sometimes I'm, I'm talking in circular arguments and she's saying, what are you trying to say? And I say, I, I just can't, I can't articulate what's inside with me. And that's sometimes how it is when I get into the presence of God. I begin to just pour out my heart to him and I say, Lord, I, I don't even know how to articulate the things that I'm thinking. Lord, you know right now I'm thinking about Culver's, but Lord, help me to push that aside so that I can get into the presence of you. You say that to God? Why not? I've said this on Wednesday, Lord, I've said, Lord, I surrender this to you. I'm surrendering this to you. I'm surrendering. I'm giving it all to you. And then I've said, Lord, you know, I don't mean any of that. I don't want to get rid of that stuff. I like that stuff. I don't want it to be in your hands because I know it's in your hands. You do things that make me uncomfortable. I want to live in comfort for a minute. But help me to mean it, God. I don't want to pray prayers with my mind that my heart doesn't mean. I want there to be a connection that, that when it pours out of me, it's from my heart. And it's not a performance. I'm not looking to pray and you cozy up alongside of me and say, wow, you sound so good when you pray. I'm not looking for your applause. I'm not looking for your approval. I'm just looking for the approval of my Savior. And so when I come into his presence, sometimes it's ugly. Sometimes it's disconnected. But eventually there comes a point when I get connected into the flow of the Spirit. Help me, Lord, to have real prayer. Help it to come from my heart. David's relationship with God did something to him. It got him to a place, and this is point number two, where David daily relied on God. David's life certainly wasn't easy or devoid of trouble. And we see within the Psalms, if you read them, we see David wrestle with the complexity of life. We see him wrestle with, with the injustice. We see him wrestle with the disappointment, the frustration, the wounds, and the accusations from friends and the threats and attacks from enemies. And the greatest insight that the Psalms give is that David knew he could take everything to God in prayer. It didn't matter the event. It didn't matter the enemy. It didn't matter the time. It didn't matter the season. David took everything to God in prayer. When others were, were content with complaining about being overlooked to their friends, David said, no, I'm not going to talk to you about this. I'm going to take this to God. When others were, were internalizing the struggles and disappointments, David said, I'm not going to internalize. I'm not going to suppress this. I'm not going to allow this to, to grow toxic emotions. So I'm going to give it to God. When others became cynical and critical of God and distanced themselves from him, David knew that was not an option. He said, that's the only place I can go and find the answers I need. So deep was the reliance David had on God that no matter the issue, he brought it to God. And as a result, David receives help in a time of need. David receives strength in moments of weakness. David receives perspective when he's off the mark. Paul would say this. He would say, Philippians 4 and 6, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. What, what if 
What if as a people, that as we go through trouble, the Lord didn't say that once you start living for him, that your life would be devoid of trouble. He he said, in the world, you will have trouble. But don't fear, I've overcome the world. It's going to get rocky out there. It's going to get dark out there. It's going to, you're going to have moments where you're going to lose your job and you're going to have moments where you're going to get sick. And, and there might be times where God allows the sickness to take you over and take you to glory. But he said, you can pray about everything. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to, to, to go to a friend and complain about it. You can take everything to me. And he said, then listen, what happens? When you worry about nothing and you pray about everything, then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. You can't even think about this piece. It's hard to identify. It's hard to define. It's hard to rationalize and to explain. But God can give you a peace that when when you're going through a a trouble and a trial, Enid, and people look at you and say, how do you have this peace? You say, it's the peace of God that passes all understanding. He said it will guard your heart and your mind. It's like God dispatches his angels and says, I want you to encamp round about Bridget's mind and her heart. And as the enemy tries to come against her with fear and worry and doubt and all these things try to come, I'm just going to knock them all out and let perfect peace settle into her. So what if we brought every complaint? What if we brought every frustration? What if we brought every disappointment? What if we brought every pain? What if we brought every uh, unfair situation and instead of worrying about it and complaining about it and caring about it, why don't we cast our cares upon him who cares for us? Something very revealing that took place in David's life It seems like the more he relied on God, the more of God that was revealed to to him. Let me give you some examples. Psalms 18 and 2, he says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength. He wasn't saying, I've read about this in a book. He wasn't saying, I had a conversation with Jim, and Jim said, he's delivered him, and so he can deliver him. He said, no, no, I know him to be very personal to me. He's my rock, which means that when I'm feeling like I'm on sinking sand, I can stand on the rock. And when I feel like everything else is unstable, there's a place of stability that I can go to. Uh, he said, he, in, in Psalms 23:1, he's my shepherd. I shall not want he, he said, I'm, I'm just a sheep. And, and as sheep, sometimes they say sheep can only see uh, two to three feet in front of them. He says, there's times I can't see what, what's in front of me. I, I'm disconnected. I, I, I withdraw myself from, from the rest of the flock. But the Lord's my shepherd. And if he's my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalms 91 and 2, he said, he's my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. He said, he's my fortress. That means when the enemy's coming against me, I can go into the fortress. The name of the Lord, it's a strong tower the righteous run into and are safe. Psalms 27 and 1, he said, he's my light. That means when it's dark, he's the one who illuminates. He said, he's a a lamp unto my feet, and he's a light unto my path. And so when I don't know where to go, and it seems like everything is dark, and everything is night, he's my light. He's my salvation. Psalm 61.3, for you have been my shelter, a strong tower from the enemy. Psalms 19 and 14, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Psalms 32 and 7, you're my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Psalms 121 and 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In Psalms 118 and 14, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. I I want you to understand something. There are sides of God that are only revealed in the storm. There are parts of God that are only revealed in times of trouble. There there are characteristics of God that we only see in times of pain. Take Job, for instance. Job, after he had gotten through the trials and the struggles, we know that Job was a a, a just man. He was righteous. He was a man that God said, listen, Satan, if you want to consider someone, consider my servant Job. There's no one like him in all the world. He's just. This is a guy that that every day has a sacrifice for his children and says, in the the event my, my children have transgressed your laws, I'm going to offer a sacrifice on their behalf. And Job goes through the trial. He loses his family. He loses all his wealth. He, he has four lousy friends that can't give him any sort of comforts. He says in one verse I was just reading the other day, he said, you're lousy comforters. You're terrible friends. But when he gets through the storm and when God 
shows up and God begins to question Job. He says, who are you? Where were you when I, when I formed the world? Do you know that I have, I have a, a, a shed filled with snow that I reserve for the day I want? And two weeks ago, I'm going to give 18 inches of it to the church in New Berlin? And after Job gets through that, Job says, I, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ears, but now my eyes see you. He said, up until this point, yeah, I was just, yeah, I was righteous, yeah, I had heard about this God, and I had had relationship with God, but there was something that only trial could bring where I finally got a revelation and began to see you for the God that you truly are. I know in the midst of our pain with Angie's suffering that there was a moment and there were times that we saw God in ways that we had never seen him before. And we're thinking, we just read stories about this, but now that God is in our house. That God is showing up and revealing himself to us. And so I'm here to tell you that you might be going through the darkest night, but if you would just put your trust in God, he will step into your situation and he will begin to show you parts of him that you've never imagined or you've never seen. Oh, to get a revelation of God, the undefeated one, the unchanging one, the healer, the provider, the one who's as close as the mention of his name. He said, call out to me in times of trouble and I will hear you. The last thing we see about David is David desired right standing with God. Please know, David, David wasn't a sinless man. He wasn't perfect by any means. As a matter of fact, there's a passage of Scripture that says that there was a time when kings went out to battle, and David decided not to go out that day. David was supposed to be someplace, and David decided, I'm going to take this day off. I'm going to take, yeah, I know I need to be at church, but I'm just going to take this week off. And in a moment where David should have been on the battle line, leading his army, he found himself on a roof and began to, to survey his kingdom. And all of a sudden, he saw a woman that was not his wife. She was married to a man. And he said, I want that woman. And David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then he tries to cover it up, and he kills her husband in battle. And as Nathan the prophet stands before David, he begins to speak to David about this parable. He said there was this man who had, who had all these beautiful sheep. He had the, all this just wonderful land, and there were just the best sheep on the land. And then across the street, there was a, a man who, who had just one sheep. They had a little lamb. The, the mom was Mary. She had a little lamb. They loved that lamb. That lamb would sit at the table with them, and they never had lamb chops because they loved the lamb so much. It became the house pet. But one day, that man that had all those sheep looked across and said, I want that sheep. I want that little lamb. And he goes and takes, and David gets so mad, and he says, show me who that man is. You tell me who that person, who, who would have the, the goal to, to have all this stuff and take from the person who has only one? And he says, you're the man. Well, what happens when a king gets confronted with his sin? What happens when the king who, who can just snap his finger and have Nathan killed and say, you know what, you don't talk to me that way, man. You don't know who I am. You have no right to come into my kingdom and, and think that you have the, uh, the, the ability to speak to the king that way. We see that David, after Nathan said, why have you despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Scripture says in verse 13, David said, I've sinned against the Lord. I understand David wasn't so concerned with what other people thought about him. He was deeply concerned about what the Lord thought about him. It was David's heart desire to be in right standing with God. And so no, he wasn't a perfect man. No, he wasn't a sinless man. But David was a repenter. He, he knew that when he distanced himself from God, when he messed up and when he made a mistake, what separated him uh, from the other people is they might conceal their sin. They might cover it up. They might say, don't worry about it. But David said, listen, no, uh, I need to be in the house of the Lord. And David would pen a famous psalm. You know it. I'm sure it very well. 
Psalms 51, the music can come. He said, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. I don't know if you noticed it as I read those last four verses, but 11 times David uses the personal pronoun, me, my, I. David doesn't deflect the responsibility on someone else. He, he, he doesn't blame someone else or justify his actions. He doesn't deflect it. But he said, it, it's my sin that's before you. It's my transgressions. I, I sinned and I've done this evil in your sight. Then in verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit with me. Do not, do not cast me away from your presence. You said, seek my face. And my heart said, Lord, your face shall I seek it. And so I, I, I don't want you to shield your face from me. I, I don't want you to shield your presence from me. I, I don't want you to take the very thing I've become accustomed to away from me. David didn't say, don't take the kingdom away from me. David wasn't worried about the future of his kingdom or his reputation. The only thing that mattered to David in that moment was there could be a, there could be a, a moment that maybe God would try to distance himself from me. Take the kingdom, take my family, take my life, but don't take the presence of the Lord from me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Many other believe Psalms 32 and Psalms 38 were written in the waiting room while David was broken for his sin, when he was waiting for what would happen to the child, when he locked himself in the altar. A lesser-known psalm about this experience in Psalms 38 and verse 18, David, about the same sin, he said, I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. That word anguish is an interesting word. It carries the sense of being sick, being weak, being in a state of great distress and affliction. It conveys the feeling of physical or emotional distress. David's not just saying, I'm sorry, I did wrong. He's not just praying a 10-second prayer, but he's saying there's a visceral response that's happening inside of me. My emotions and my body, I'm sick to my stomach to think of what I've done. When was the last time you got broken for your sin? I'm sure you confess your faults. I'm sure you repent daily. Sure, you like Paul died yourself. But when was the last time you went beyond just saying, I'm sorry? When was the last time you couldn't get out of your prayer closet and you couldn't progress on to your supplication because you couldn't get past repentance? And you just began to be broken for your sin. You began to be broken for the sin that's around you. the last time you rushed to an altar and you didn't just take five seconds to say God I'm sorry and now I got to go about my day but, but when's the last time you let warm tears drip down your face and you said God I've been messing up Lord Lord I know the big things but Lord there's other things that I've been allowing to come into my life God there's, there's things that I've been okay with God there's things that used to make my skin crawl but Lord now I'm accepting of them God Lord, there's conversation that I used to excuse myself from, but now I, I entertain it and I laugh at it. God, there's movies that I, I used to never want to watch or wouldn't even allow in my life or in my house, but now, God, they're in my Netflix, Netflix queue. They're things that I just watch and I don't give, give a thought to otherwise. When's the last time there was true brokenness in your heart for your sin? I don't want my sin to be the thing that separates me from God. I don't want my addiction to be the thing that causes his, his spirit to withdraw from me. 
Samson got to a place where, where he thought, you know what, my hair's been cut, but I'm just going to shake it off and I'm going to go out and I'm going to do what I did in times past. And scripture says he knew not that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. He had become so numb to his sinfulness. He had become so numb to his way of living that he was accepting of it. He thought, I'll just come to church and I'll jump and I'll dance and everything will be all fine. When the pastor calls me down to the altar, I'll go down to the altar and I'll say my, my 10 second prayer and I'll walk out the door and nothing will change, but it's okay because I fulfilled my obligation. But what if today we get to a place that we're broken for our sin? You see, it's your sin that is the thing that separates you from God. It's your sin that's the thing that makes it where you don't want to be in the presence of God. It's your sin that, that says in your ear, it's okay if you skip today and tomorrow. It's your sin that says, you don't need to schedule this. Don't listen to what pastor's saying. That's so rudimentary. You don't need to do those things. It's your sin that would dismiss this message and say, you know what? What I'm doing is good enough. But when we remove that sin and we get to a place when we're back in right standing with God, there will be a craving and a desire. One thing have I desired of the Lord. This will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I open this altar up to you today. You can make the decision. I'm not trying to, to twist your arm. I'm not trying to guilt you into coming down to this altar. But I'm wondering if there could be a cry that goes forth from this congregation where truly within us we are broken. And instead of looking around at our society and being sick, that we begin to be broken for the sin. When you're done confessing your sins, you begin to confess the sins of your family and your community and your state. God, forgive us, Lord. Have mercy upon us, O oh God. Cleanse us with hyssop. Wash us and make us white as snow. This is my